Hi, everybody. This is Dan. I wanted to thank you all for listening to the podcast. Andrew and I are really having a lot of fun doing this so far, and we hope you're enjoying listening to it as much as we're enjoying doing it. In this episode, you might notice a little bit of bad audio, especially in the last 15 minutes or so. We recorded this during some bad weather, and we listened back to the audio. We noticed some distortions that were a little hard to fix. I really do want to apologize for the inconvenience, and thanks again for listening to Hello Old Sports on the Sports History Network. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to episode three of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, along with my co-host, Andrew Newman, and welcome again to episode three of Hello, Old Sports on the Sports History Network. Last week, we gave you our all-time team for the New York Yankees, and a lot of people, when they think of baseball and when they think of New York, they think of the Yankees. But believe it or not, New York was a National League town long before it was a Yankees town, and throughout the years, they've had many teams in the National League that called New York home. In the 20th century, there have been three, those being the New York Giants, the Brooklyn Dodgers, both of whom left the New York area in 1957, and then the New York Mets, who came to town in 1962 and called Queens home ever since. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing all right, Dan. I'm uh, excited to get into into today's episode, although I will say right at the top, this was hard for me today. Yes. This was definitely harder than the Yankee, um, the all-time Yankee roster, I think really for two reasons for me. First of all, because being a Yankee fan, I think it was much more easy for me to just pick out players that I knew of from Yankee history. And then second of all, since it was only one team, you didn't have to do a lot of sort of weird comparisons between not only different players in different eras, but different players on different teams in different eras. Exactly. You know, you could pull up and obviously and also with the Yankees, they just to take nothing away from any of the other three teams we're going to be discussing today. But um, the Yankees have so much history that it was, you kind of know we talked about this last week that when I, a lot of the positions, especially the starters, it's like you filled in right away. You know, you knew who yeah. you were put at first base, you knew who you were going to put a shortstop, and in the outfield and things like that. With this, it's not as much of a gimme, and you also had so not only are you spanning a whole century of three different teams. You know, obviously two of them from 1900 to 1957, and then the Mets from '62 on, although. We can probably throw out those first couple Mets seasons. I don't think anybody who is prominently on either of those teams or any of those teams are going to be on this list. But, you know, at least with the Yankees, you can, you can kind of reference all-time sort of standing, or not standings, but statistics and, you know, who led, who's the all-time Yankees leader in this or in, in, in even looking at some of the advanced statistics, the more modern ones with, you know, now you're talking about three teams. And I think I mentioned last week, you also, for certain guys, have to split the atom about their careers, you know, because, okay, well, when did they move to California? So how much of, I don't think it's any secret, Willie Mays will come up later on. How much of Willie Mays's career, his first seven years, do you factor in? Because you can't take any of the San Francisco years. So it was definitely a little more difficult. Um, I was expecting it to be harder than the Yankees one, but it was even more difficult than I imagined. And that's all my way of sort of apologizing for 
the fact that I probably did not do a very good job. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's why we're here is to dive into this and just to sort of give everybody the background. The Dodgers, while in Brooklyn, uh, nine pennants and one World Series. The Giants in New York, 15 pennants and five World Series. Uh, and the Mets, five no, pennants and two World Series championships. Are those 15 pennants, is that the just the 20th century or does that go back farther? Yes, and that's my next point. We specifically, those numbers are just for the 20th century for the Dodgers and Giants. We specifically capped this, and I think we mentioned this in the previous episode, we specifically capped this at 1900 forward. That was the year that the American League came into being. That was the year that uh, modern baseball really became modern baseball, the sort of two-league system that we know to this day. So there are a lot of very good or even great players that played uh, for especially the Giants prior to 1900. Roger Connor is one that initially comes to mind, who was a first baseman, who was the all-time home run leader until Babe Ruth broke the record in the 1920s. Some some of the pitchers, guys like an Amos Rusi, or a lot of good um, players, especially on the Giants pre-1900. And hopefully that's something we can get into in a future episode. So for sort of the ability to make an apples to apples comparison, we went just with post-1900 for the Dodgers and Giants, and obviously the whole uh, 58 year history of the Mets. And in a lot of ways, it's very fitting that we're doing this now because the, we're looking at a 57 or 58 year period for both the Dodgers and the Giants from 1900 to 1957. And then for the Mets, it's just about that same amount of time they came into the National League in 1962 and, uh, obviously have played up through this day in 2020. Interesting fact for those of you who may not be as familiar, the, Dodgers and Giants both left for California in 1957. The Giants were the first ones who really wanted to go because attendance at their home park at the Polo Grounds had been steadily declining throughout the 1950s. They originally had planned to move to the Midwest, to Minneapolis. Uh, but once the Dodgers started to make noise like they might want to move as well, the Giants and Dodgers sort of talked together and realized that a move to California would only work if at least two teams went. So it was not a coincidence that both of those New York teams left for California at the same time for the 1958 season. The other thing that's interesting to note is that the Dodgers and Giants, both uh, in their uniforms, wore the same colors that they have to this day. The Dodgers with uh, the famous Dodger blue and then the Giants with the orange and black. And so when the Mets were founded, they took the orange from the Giants and the blue from the Dodgers and made that into the Mets colors of orange and blue. So the legacy of both New York National League teams lives on in the New York Mets. Although it is interesting just how late the Giants landed on that. I think we always associate them with the orange and the black because that's what they wore, you know, the last 10 years or so were in New York and Willie Mays, and, you know, the shot heard around the world and the catch in four. They, uh, you know, that was a, a late forties thing. They had kind of bounced all around. They were blue and orange for a long time. They were orange and black was certainly, they wore those colors in New York, but it wasn't settled until their last 10 or 15 years in New York that they were the, what became the iconic New York and then San Francisco giants colors. And this is a rivalry that really is sort of unprecedented in sports. Um, 
Maybe you see a little bit, for instance, with, say, Rangers Islanders, but really when you have two teams in the same city with people who live and work together in the city talking about their teams every day, and this isn't like Mets and Yankees where they only get together for interleague or in the World Series maybe once in a blue moon, but these are teams that played each other over 20 times a year. And for a lot of the history, especially towards the end in the 40s and 50s, both were very good. So great rivalry, something we hope to delve into probably in future episodes. But for now, uh, they are going to call a truce and form a single team to compete with the vaunted New York Yankees. So, Andrew, are you ready to go ahead and get started on this? I am ready. And just before we do, I want to point out, because, you know, you know, and some people, anyone who's listening who's known me before knows that I've always had a very strong sort of affinity and interest in the polo grounds where the Giants played up until they left in the mid-50s and then the Mets played their first couple of years. I actually have a picture of the polo grounds hanging in my kitchen. Uh, I went to the polo grounds or what, you know, the what is the modern, the site of where the polo grounds is, is currently a, you know, a housing project and a piece of a park. I went there a few years ago and took some pictures of the only thing that's left, which is a, is a staircase. So this fictional team will be playing their home games at the polo grounds in my mind. Um, well, for the simulation, and I'd actually thought about this, I was going to have the first two games be played at the old Yankee Stadium, and then the middle three, one each at the Polo Grounds, Ebbets Field, and Shea. And then if it went to game six and seven, I was going to have those last two played at the modern Yankee Stadium. So that was my plan. I guess that's fair. Um, (laughs) Put a button on it before we move on. There's, I tend to get going and talk about sports history, as I'm sure you and a lot of people listening to it do. And I was in the city a few years ago in New York City with a some friends and then also some friends of theirs who I didn't really know. And it was the second time I had met uh, one of my friend's roommates down in the city. He's a nice guy, but I didn't know him very well. It was only the second time I met him and I was talking to him and may or may not have have had a few spirits. And I got on a roll where I was starting to talk about the polo grounds to this person I've only met one other time. And he was being really friendly about it. He wasn't being a jerk about it, but he's like, yeah, man, you told me this last time. (laughs) I've met that twice, and both times I'd started talking about a baseball stadium that hasn't existed in 60 years. Polo Grounds, incidentally, the home of the Giants, later the Mets, and then even after that, the uh, football, or before that, um, the football Giants. Now, and did the Jets ever play at the Polo Grounds? They must have played their first couple of years there. Yeah, they were the Titans, but yeah, they that would they played there, you know, their first couple of years when they were in the AFL, um, which would have been before the Mets, I believe, because when did the Jets come in in 1960 or the Titans? They would have been at the time. Yes, and then um, and the Yankees played there too. So outside of the Dodgers, every baseball and football team uh, who's ever called New York the New York metropolitan area home played at least a year or two at the Polo Grounds. Absolutely. All right, well, why don't we go ahead and get started, and I think just like last week, we'll go ahead with the catchers. Um, And just to refresh, uh, it's two players at every position, six outfielders, and we don't necessarily need two at each of the three outfield positions, eight starting pitchers, four relief pitchers, and then two additional position players that are sort of the utility men to round it out at a roster of 30. Thank you again to Tom Stones, now taking the field. 
baseball's all-time dream teams for all 30 franchises for providing the motivation and the framework for these rosters. I will include a link to that book as well as some of the other books that I used in preparing for this uh, in the show notes. To start off, let's start with the catchers. And I viewed this as sort of a competition between three players from three different eras for three spots. And that was Mike Piazza, Roy Campanella, and Gary Carter. How did you look at it? So I thought about Carter. I don't have Carter on my list, and I don't have a catcher as a third player. Um, I guess the only the reasons I didn't list Carter on there, you know, with the two of them is just didn't play. And I know Piazza played plenty of other places too, but Carter didn't clearly have his best years as part of his of the New York team. I think did he go into the Hall of Fame as an expo? He did choose to go into the Hall of Fame as an expo, yes. The Hall of Fame is an expo. Again, I'm not going to make too strong of a case against Gary Carter, but it was only a Met for, what, five years, 85, 86, 87, 89. Not that that's an automatic disqualification, but that was sort of why, considering the other two guys, I just found out, you know, I just sort of came to the conclusion that I couldn't put him above either of those two. And then just when we get to the, the sort of two bonus spots at the end, I couldn't um, I just decided not to not to put him in there as a third catcher. So did you have anybody else beyond Piazza and Campanella that you thought was worth considering or were those your two as well? Not really. I mean, you know, my my initial thought is like, oh, I don't want to I want to make sure I'm not overlooking somebody from a really long time ago. Um you know, the nice thing for the Dodgers, with an exception here and there, you don't have to consider much with the Dodgers before the, you know, the 40s. Um, so, no, I, I really didn't come up with anybody who I thought would belong on the class of either of those three. So, no, it was, it was really just, to me, it was Campanella and Piazza. Most home runs in a single season by a catcher. Um, uh, there's There are quite a few on the list, Johnny Bench, Javi Lopez, but... Campanella with 41 in a season and Piazza with 42 different times. So definitely two of the best offensive catchers of all time. Piazza, somebody we remember from more recently, kind of was the first step in turning the Mets franchise around after the 80s when they'd been very good and won the championship. They were sort of on a decline for most of the 90s. And then in 98, they finally made the trade for Piazza and were in the playoffs in 99, went to the World Series in 2000. They did just miss the playoffs in 2001. So Piazza, beloved as a figure in Mets history. Campanella is somebody who in some ways sort of gets eclipsed uh, because he was sort of the second great black player to join the Dodgers after Jackie Robinson. He also is somebody who... Both the beginning and the end of his career was cut short because he obviously, like all black players, was not able to get into the league as early as he might have because of the color line, didn't get in until age 26. And then right before the Dodgers were all set to move to Los Angeles in between the 1957 and 58 seasons, he had the car accident that led to him being paralyzed for the rest of his life. You sort of have to extrapolate a little bit when it comes to Campanella. But nonetheless, this is a guy who won three MVP awards in five years, 1951, 1953, and 1955. 
And if you look at some of the players that he was competing with for those MVP awards in those years, Willie Mays, Jackie Robinson, Stan Musial, um, Ernie Banks, Hank Aaron came into the league in the mid-50s. So three MVPs in five years is impressive for anybody, let alone for a catcher. So I am inclined to make Campanella the starter, uh, if you are all right with that. Yep, I, I had Campanella listed as the starter as well. Just the one thing I wanted to, to mention there when you talked about him with the um you know, being on the not being able to begin his career because of uh integration had not yet occurred. It's also one of those things where, you know, Campanello is his what was his I'm assuming his father was Italian and his mother was African American, correct? Yeah, Campanella so, was his well, I knew one one father, one parent was black and one was white and Campanella being a very Italian name, I think that I that sounds right to me. And I'm assuming it was the case with him, just like it was with a lot of Latin players, where you'll hear about guys in the 20s and 30s who were Cuban or Puerto Rican who were in Major League Baseball. And it was almost more disgusting because they would just sort of look at you and decide if your skin color was white enough to use a, you know, that's certainly not something I would, I'm, I'm quoting the, the wording of the yes, time. Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, they would basically decide if a guy was white enough to be in the major leagues. So you could have two guys from the same country and they just go, ah, you're, you're right. You're not. So for a guy like Campanella, I'm assuming it was the same kind of thing where, you know, he probably with an Italian last name might've been able to pass it off if he wasn't, you know, if his skin was a little lighter. So just goes to show you how malicious and absurd at the same time it was. I think Campanella, just like you mentioned, winning the MVPs, Piazza was obviously came to New York from LA, I mean, from the Marlins, but after, you know, had been a Dodger a week and a half before that, you know, from LA was already a high profile player. And there's a pretty short list of guys who come to New York, especially, you know, the Mets, if we're being fair, who come to New York as big stars and not only don't diminish their star in New York, but actually become bigger stars, both in terms of on-field play and in terms of stature. And I think Piazza definitely did that with New with the Mets. Absolutely. All right, so we got Campanella as the starter and Mike Piazza as the second catcher. The All of the positions in the infield are sort of strange, and not none of them really, to me, jump out as particularly strong. Let's start with first base. And what did you have for first base? So first base, I had two guys. I'll, I'll give them to you in no specific order. Although by saying that, I'm probably giving away that I'm going to go second and then first. But I had uh, Keith Hernandez, obviously the Mets in the, the 80s Mets teams. And then uh, I had Bill Terry from the Giants from the 20s and 30s, um, you know, perennial all-star MVP level player was on the team that won the title. Well, he was an all-star at the end of his career because there was no all-star game before that. Um, and then, you know, finished in the top 10 in MVP voting a bunch of times, was on the team that won in 33, won a championship. So that, that's who I Not am. only was he on the team in 33, but he was manager of the team in 33. Right. So, yeah, I, I will definitely go with Bill Terry. I think he's probably a good starting first baseman. For first base, for the second position, I was sort of between three guys. I was between Hernandez, who you mentioned, uh, Johnny Mize, who played for the Giants and also later went on and won a bunch of World Series with the Yankees. Johnny Mize played with the Giants. Uh, 
not for very long, really for only three and a half years, but put up some crazy numbers, including in 1947, where he had 51 home runs and 138 RBIs, led the league in home runs in both 1947 and 1948, led the league in RBIs a couple years with the Giants, both in 42 and 47. So spent the beginning of his career with the Cardinals, spent the end of his career with the Yankees, but had some really good years as a Giant. I can understand wanting to leave him off. And then the other guy who I included is Gil Hodges. Now, Hodges is another one who maybe gets eclipsed a little bit because he was overshadowed by a lot of Hall of Famers that were on the Dodgers with him, Robinson, Reese, Campanella, Snyder, but a guy who made a bunch of all-star teams, a guy who won a World Series, was widely considered at his at the time one of the best players in the league, and it's sort of uh, considered by a lot of people sort of a crime that he's not in the Hall of Fame, and that might be a conversation for another day. And I, I should point out, I do, I forgot, to, I do have Hodges as one of my two additional players. So I had Terry as the starter, Hernandez, and then Hodges as one of as my third first baseman, as you know, as as a the, the two last guys on the roster. So I, I did. The have one Hodges. thing that I think now that I think about it, that maybe might tip it towards Hernandez is that um, he was one of, if not the best defensive first baseman of the modern era, won a ton of gold gloves, both with the Cardinals and with the Mets. His best years were probably with the Cardinals. That was where he won his MVP in 79, um, which was an MVP split with a couple other players, which was strange. You know, I think I was probably inclined to include both of them as uh, as extra players as well. Why don't we do that? Why don't we make it Terry and then Hernandez and uh, we'll we'll add Hodges as an extra player as well right now? Yeah, I, th- I think with Mize, just as I'm looking at it, I mean, I know you said he only played, he played in 42 and then lost three years, 43, 44, 45 because of military service. And then he was a, a giant for a few more years after that. But when we're talking about what we're talking about, and we didn't set down any specific criteria, but... I'm kind of weighing guys who played more time and more percentage of their career. And obviously there's exceptions to that, but I look and I just think, yeah, I, you know, compared to Gil Hodges and Keith Hernandez, who I know played plenty of years elsewhere and Terry, I just, I didn't have him quite. Agreed. All right. Well, why don't we move on to second base? And I'd have to imagine that the consensus pick at second base is Jackie Robinson. Yes, and the only weird thing with Jackie Robinson is he played so many different positions in his time in the majors. You know, he started as a first baseman in 47, which wasn't his natural position, and then they moved him over, and then as he got older, well, he played a little third base when he got older, and then... He first played, went to the outfield in 1953 when uh, Jim Gilliam came up. Jim Gilliam, who ended up playing many, many years with the Dodgers. He was actually on the Koufax Drysdale teams going into the mid-60s. So, yeah, Robinson moved from second base to the outfield in, I believe it was really in 53. And then a couple of years after that, when they got rid of Billy Cox, who was the regular third baseman, and and Sandy Amaros came up, they moved Robinson back into the infield to third base. So, 
Robinson made an all-star team playing playing the outfield, playing second base. Didn't make the all-star team in 1947 when he was playing first base his rookie year, but there were obviously probably some other reasons beyond that. But he did win the very first Rookie of the Year award, led the league in steals. So um, I was tempted to sort of try and use some of that flexibility with Robinson, but I, I think that we probably can just leave, leave him as the starting second baseman. That's that's what I had. And then who did you have as your uh, as your my second baseman was Frankie Frisch, who played for the Giants in the early 1920s. Joe McCarthy, who later managed the Yankees, said, if I needed one player to do the job of winning the game, I needed to win. That player would be Frankie Frisch. His really great years were with the Cardinals. Uh, He was traded there, actually traded for another great second baseman, Rogers Hornsby, after the 1926 season. But Hornsby only spent one season with the Giants before he moved on to other teams. So Hornsby's not really a consideration here, but still put up some really good years, won a couple of World Series with the Giants in the early 1920s, led the league in runs one year, led the league in hits another. And if you think about it, there are really no great Dodger second baseman prior to Jackie Robinson. And I really cannot think of any Mets second baseman that kind of would warrant any sort of a consideration for this type of thing. No, there, there's really not. And, and a couple of these infield positions are weaker than you would think, you know, given that the Dodgers had that. We talked, you know, the Dodgers, the Dodgers weren't great, really. They won what a couple? What was it, fifteen and twenty? They won pennants. I know they won one of the ones the Red. They Sox won, won pennants in nineteen sixteen right? and nineteen twenty. But and then they really were not much to speak of, at best, you know, and at worst they were something to speak of, but none of it was positive up until the forties, and then got good in the early forties and were, you know, I don't know if you can call it a dynasty because they only won the one ring, but were the best team in the National League on balance for 17 years until they moved. You know, and the the Giants had multiple good eras in that time. So you would think there would be more there, but there really in some instances weren't. Who did you have as your, who did you have as your other second base? My other second baseman was Frisch. That I had Robinson and Frisch. I don't think it's particularly, you know, that like you said it, it really drops off off a cliff after that in terms of other guys to consider. I, w- I was actually this and the next one we're going to talk about. I was actually pretty surprised at how slim. I don't want to say slim the pickings were, but you know, I, I was yeah, underwhelmed. Absolutely, I the, um, the the infield positions, especially second and third, are not particularly not a lot to choose from there. Believe it or not. So, all right. So we went with Jackie Robinson, and yeah, we've agreed pretty much so far. We, you know, first base, we were. You know, a little bit different, but catcher second. You know, so far we've we've been in in a little more agreement, which, like I said last week, just more makes me feel good that I don't have too many picks that are wildly out of. So, so you're right. Third base to me seems very weak. Third base is really the only position that doesn't even have two Hall of Famers. Now, some of these Hall of Famers at some of these positions, um, some of the shortstop uh, shortstop Hall of Famers are a little bit they're a little bit touchy, uh, but. They're, you know, they may not be pure Hall of Famers as you might think of them. But at third base, you have Fred Lindstrom, who played for the Giants in the 1930s. And then other than that, 
there's really nobody else at third base. Um, Lindstrom played for the Giants from 24 to 32. Uh, so got there um, just as they had sort of stopped winning World Series and then left the year before they won it again in 33. So never won a championship. Lindstrom is one of those Hall of Famers who maybe kind of sort of doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame and got in through the back door of the Veterans Committee. But nonetheless, he is the only third baseman, regular third baseman from any team that is in the Hall of Fame. So I almost feel like maybe he gets it by default. Yeah, I I had David Wright as the first baseman, or excuse me, as the third baseman. Um, you know, certainly it's tough with a guy who you don't have much hindsight on his career because he really just hung it up. And then on top of that, had so many years at the end of his career where... He bare, you know, 2015, 2016, he played less than 40 games and then didn't play at all the next year. And then in 2018, had like a token appearance just to go out, um, you know, to go out playing a couple of games rather than going out, you know, not having played for three or four years. But, you know, Wright, again, didn't have the longest career, but he was still a, a Met, even if you take the sort of few years at the end off. He was there 10 years. He was, the real sort of crux is 05 through 08 where especially 06 through 08, he finished in the top 10 in MVP each year, won a couple of gold gloves, you know, was an all-star. What was this? One, two, three, four, five, seven-time all-star. Um, you know, again, the career was obviously, by the time he was 32 or so, his career was pretty much over because of injuries. But I, I just thought he had that run. He was the lead play. You know, he was the sort of face of that team, had those years of, 30 home runs and over 100 RBIs and one gold gloves and was sort of Mr. Met, although not as cool as actual Mr. Met. But, um, you know, that that's why I that's you know why I'm I taking a look as, here. As career war of about 47 for David Wright, which is 20 points higher than what Freddie Lindstrom's career war is even. And then even if you factor in the fact that Lindstrom played a couple years at the tail end of his career with some other teams in the National League. Yeah, my thing with David Wright is that Met fans loved him so much when he first came up, and then he was injured for so many seasons that you kind of felt like, you know, he was one of those guys where they, you know, they say he became so overrated that you almost felt like he was underrated. Never really reached the heights that people thought he would reach. But I think for what he meant for the team, for how many years he put in, I think I'm comfortable making David Wright the starter on the team. Did you have another third baseman or was Lindstrom your backup third baseman? I had Art Devlin. I was a, the Giants third baseman in the very early 20th century, sort of the Christy Mathewson era teams from 1904 to 1912. It looks like it was Art Devlin. Um, you know, I think probably Lindstrom would go ahead of him, but Devlin, you know, in the very heart of the dead ball era, had a bunch of seasons with over 100 hits and numbers that don't blow you away by modern standards. But uh, in the 60s in RBIs, and I know according to this note I have here, Grantland Rice listed him on his all-time third baseman list for the Giants as their you know top third baseman of all time. Here is Tom Stone uh, in his book on Art Devlin. Played for the Giants for most of his career and was a good fielder and base runner. He had 266 stolen bases and a league-leading 59 in 1905, but he was a mediocre hitter, 268, with virtually no power. He hit a total of 10 home runs in eight seasons and never even topped 23 doubles or eight triples in a season. 
I think I would probably lean towards Lindstrom in this case because the offense is just a little bit better. Lindstrom um, led the league in hits with 231 in 1928 career batting average of 311 which is almost 50 points higher than devlin so why don't we go with lindstrom why don't we move on shortstop here this is another position that i thought was comparatively weak why don't you lead this one off who did you go with as your starting shortstop i went with travis jackson from the giants of the 20s and the one thing i will say about travis jackson is for being a shortstop from the 20s, he's got a remarkably current name. You wouldn't be surprised that if a guy true. now a good was point. named Travis Jackson. His nickname was Stonewall, which it's interesting to me, putting aside whatever, you know, Southern political reasons there were for that. Isn't that sort of a strange nickname for a guy who plays the most important defensive position on the field, Stonewall? Yeah, I think it means, you know, I think they kind of, even aside from the Southern thing, it's also got the sort of veneer of toughness, you know what I mean? Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, oh, he's as sturdy as a stone wall. Realistically, I'm sure it was just because his, I'm assuming Travis Jackson was from the South. But, you know, you could at least see why. Yeah, like, no, that's I'm sure that's why point. Stonewall Jackson was named that originally. Stonewall Jackson? on here because his defense was suspect. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, that's why his name was Stonewall was because his... I, I was thinking just because his last name was Jackson. Yeah, okay. I get it. It's like how anybody back then, if you look at all-time tallest baseball players, if you, like, go to baseball reference and sort it by tallest players... The first, like, six of them are all called Slim something. We weren't very creative with nicknames back in those days. Uh, Jackson was was a Hall of Famer. Made it in through the Veterans Committee in 1982. So he still, I think, probably gets in during that Ted Williams-dominated period where maybe they were electing some guys who weren't quite as deserving as those who got in in either era. Never really led the league in any category. Won a World Series with the team in 1933. So a, a good player. I had actually gone with Pee Wee Reese as my starting shortstop. Now, I think that sometimes Pee Wee Reese maybe gets a little bit overrated because he's so well known for his friendship with Jackie Robinson. So maybe he gets a little bit overrated on the field and he actually got in through the veterans committee in 84 so right around the same time that travis jackson did but reese did have some years where he put up some relatively decent numbers led the league in runs in 1949 i'm just sort of looking at some of these statistics reese's all-time batting average was 269 jackson's higher at 291 you know, 46, finished 6th in MVP, 47, 8th, 48, 6th, 49, 5th. So I had some really good years in the late 40s, you know, as far as being all one right. of the top um, players in the league. I, I think I'm inclined to go with Reese here, if that's all right with you, just because more famous historically, not that that means everything, and also the fact that that way we can preserve a Brooklyn uh, middle infield uh, double play combination of Robinson and Reese. All right. So just to go over the infield real quick, uh, catcher Campanella with the backup of Mike Piazza. First baseman is Ralph Terry and the backup is Keith Hernandez, but we also included Gil Hodges. Uh, Jackie Robinson's the starting second baseman. Frankie Frisch uh, from the New York Giants of the 20s is the backup second baseman. 
David Wright is the starting third baseman, and Fred Lindstrom is his backup. And then we have Pee Wee Reese at short with a backup of Travis Jackson. So as you might expect here, a lot of New York Giants from the 20s and 30s, every position other than catcher has at least one New York Giant of the 20s and 30s as one of its players, which really makes sense because that was sort of, even though they're not remembered as well as the Brooklyn Dodgers of the 40s and 50s, that was sort of the best extended time period for any New York National League team. And that's the New York Giants, uh, really for the whole, like from the beginning of the century all the way through to sometime in the 1930s. Uh, yeah, and that's basically not coincidentally coincides with the John McGraw era. I believe so. McGraw took over, what, in the middle of the 02 season? Nah, yeah, McGraw took over in the middle of the 02 season, and then his... He left, he left in, in 1932. He actually he left announced his retirement 32. the same day that Lou Gehrig hit four home runs in a game. Uh, so Gehrig got pushed off the front pages uh, because McGraw had announced his retirement. Read a, a book on John McGraw and Christy Mathewson specifically over the summer. And from what I recall, you know, he left in the middle of the 32 season. And, and the funny thing, not funny, but John McGraw, you always think of him as being a, a grizzled no. old man and he didn't even live to be an old man. You know, so when you think about early 20s and he was like 40, but he was just an old in the book I read is like he was 42, whatever year they were talking about. They said he was 42, but he was an old 42. All right. So let's move on to the outfield. And the first thing that I was going to say was that in putting together my list, I was fully prepared to make the sort of contrarian argument that maybe Willie Mays should not be on this team or maybe that he should not even maybe just that he should not be a starter because mm -hmm. he really only had four full years as a New York giant. So he came into the league in 1951, joined the team and that was his first year in the majors, one rookie of the year. So a very good year uh, played in 121 games. He was, as many know, he was the one who was on deck when Bobby Thompson hit the famous home run against Ralph Branco to win the National League pennant that year. The the Willie Mays was on deck thing goes in the Hall of Fame of... That's a thing that people love to tell you. Like, oh, you know, everybody... Nobody knows that Willie Mays was on deck. And it's like, if you know sports and you know... Like, all I'm saying is it's not as obscure as... There are, there are those kinds of things in sports. Like, a more recent example is that, that Cowboys game, the giant Cowboy game five or six years ago where Odell Beckham made that crazy catch. And for years after that, everybody would go, oh, everybody forgets they lost that game. It's like nobody ever forgot they lost that game. That's I just always have felt that with his, baseball history. People like to point that, point that out. And I do think everybody remembers that. If you Anyway, I didn't mean to rain on your parade. I know there's a lot of people who don't know that. But I think a lot of people and I knew you knew it. I was I was sharing it with the like audience. Know it all. Uh, Fair I, enough. I, I'm only interested in me, much like the aforementioned this, Odell Beckham. But that's uh, that's a big diversion. Um, <laughs> so anyway, Mays after the '51 season, he plays about 30 games in '52, then gets drafted into the military during the Korean War. So misses most of '52, all of '53, and then finally comes back in '54. So. I was sort of ready to discount Mays' New York career because it wasn't that long. 
and his a lot most of his career was really built uh once the team moved to San Francisco. But if you look at Willie Mays, so he won the rookie of the year in fifty one, fine. Um next couple of years really don't count. But then in fifty four he was MVP. He hit three forty five to lead the league. And the following year in 50, and they, when the Giants win the World Series in 54, sweep the Indians led by Willie Mays. He makes the famous catch. 1955, he leads the league in triples with 13 and in home runs with 51. And then 56, he leads the league in steals with 40, leads the league in steals and triples in 1957. And he's also leading the league in uh, slugging, in um, OPS. So really just doing incredibly. And if you look at his war, 10.5, 9.1, 7.6, 8.3. So while perhaps his tenure in New York gets slightly overrated, uh, given how short it was, when I looked at the competition and when I looked at the numbers again, and when you consider the fact that he led the team to really its only World Series victory in something like a 75-year period in 1954. Longer than that. 33 to 2010. So yeah, I guess it would have been I'm going to go with years, Willie Mays, yeah. and I think uh, if Andrew, if you're on board, I'm going to make him the starting center fielder. Yep, and I, I, I kind of went into that the same way you did. Because I was like, you know, I don't want to do the thing where I just put the biggest name in there because, you know, I know he was a rookie in 51 and he missed basically two full seasons. And then by 58, they were gone. Obviously, whatever he did as a mess isn't really going to tip the scales one way or another. But then I did what you did. And I looked at really that four year period from 54 to 57 where, you know, you mentioned some of the stats. You look at OPS above one. Four of those five years, or excuse me, three of those four years, except for 56, and it was, you know, nine nine point nine two six in 56. So just some monster years there. 55 was probably the best year he had in addition to all of those moments in 54, which, you know, you don't want to overrate those, but you also don't want, don't want to discount those. You know, he made... Whether it's the greatest catch of all time or it's just the most iconic catch of all time in game one of the 54 World Series, it's still one of those things. Um, led them to their, their only championship between the 30s and 10 years ago. So yeah, I, I kind of went into it with the same mindset as you. was like, I'm going to cut through the noise and not just give it to him because he's the biggest name. And then I and obviously and I like, from I a know, statistical he, he point of view, his time with the Mets doesn't matter as much, but... The fact that it was such a big deal to bring him back uh, and that Met fans loved that so much in 1973 on their World Series team, I think shows you just how important he was to the city of New York. Um, the 1973 Mets, a very interesting team in that the two most prominent figures, I guess two of the three, because you could count Tom Seaver too, were the legend Willie Mays and the catcher, uh, the manager Yogi Berra, the former catcher for the Yankees. So. That 1973 Mets team, which almost won the World Series, was a team that featured two players who attained their legend status with two other New York teams. After Willie Mays, to me, there's sort of one other real no-brainer as far as who should be the second person on this team. And it's somebody who's not necessarily uh, not nearly as well known as Willie Mays, but 
who was your second outfielder? Because I'm guessing it was the same person for me. Well, I, I didn't necessarily mm-hmm. list them one, two, three. I just kind of listed three starting outfielders by position. Um, so I, I'll name one of the other two that I had in the starting out, Mel Ott, as one of my guys. Uh, I have him listed here as the right fielder. Was that? Okay. So Mel Ott uh, obviously spent most of his career, was I guess all of his career, with the, the New York Giants from... 26 to 47, so kind of between, I mean, obviously he was on the team that won in 33, kind of other than that, between the two eras, you had the early 20s era where they played the Yankees three straight times in the World Series, and then the early 50s, right before they moved to San Francisco with the, you know, the rivalry with the Dodgers and everything, but Ott was Hall of Famer, you know, uh, he's hit more home runs in his home ballpark than any player in major league history. Uh, Melot at the polo grounds. Um, just I'm trying to pull up some of his home run numbers here in the, uh, you know, late twenties and early thirties, over 30 home runs pretty much every single year. Um, finished, you know, towards the top in MVP voting every year. Um, you can obviously fill in more than than I have, but I two hundred and fifty eight feet to right field in the polo grounds for the left handed hitting Mel Ott. So, sort of the perfect mix of ballpark and player. But this is a guy um, never won an MVP award. Ironically, never finished higher than third, but led the league in home runs several times. Um, won a World Series. Universally beloved. Leads the Giants franchise all time in runs batted in actually has one more RBI total career as a giant than Willie Mays does. Started his career in 1926 at the age of 17 and didn't end it until 1947 at the age of 38. And uh, Leo DeRocher, uh, who I guess did not manage uh, Ott with the Giants, but uh, competed against him in the National League for many years, said, I never knew a baseball player who was so universally loved. Why, even when he was playing against the Dodgers at Ebbets Field, he would be cheered. So loved by his teammates, loved by the fans, loved by John McGraw, and really is one of the all-time great players. Uh, And one more little factoid about Mel Ott, he shows up as a crossword puzzle clue at least once every couple of weeks because I think the configuration of letters in his name the ott makes him uh makes that name a very popular crossword puzzle clue so we've got Mays, we've got mel ott we've got two giants who is your third starting outfielder who's your left fielder i went with zach wheat from the early 20th century dodgers you know before when i talked about the dodgers i said with one or two exceptions you don't have to really think too much about the dodgers prior to the early 40s zach wheat is one of the exceptions he played outside of his last season where he went to the athletics, played his whole career with the Dodgers, largely on mediocre to bad teams with one or two exceptions, you know, played a good amount of his career, pretty much his whole twenties in the dead ball era, but was still one of the leading hitters of the time, batted over 300 from 1912 until 1918 or really till 19. Just really his whole career with one or two exceptions. And then when you, you kind of look at the jump in his numbers, he was a 320-ish or 3, you know, 12 hitter in the dead ball era. And then as soon as the live ball comes up, he wasn't a power hitter, but all of a sudden you see his batting average jump up to 
375 a couple of times, 359 a couple of times. So really just a 20-year career, the best player on largely bad teams most of that time, played, you know, almost every day for a lot of those years and, and got a bunch of hits. And I think also the impressive that he was able to sort of span the gap of both eras because there were guys, you know, who obviously guys like Cobb were the exception, but there were guys who, when the game changed in the early 20s, were just left behind because they did, they were equipped for a certain era. And then when the game changed as drastically as it did, they were done. I was with you. I went with Zach Wheat in addition to Mays and Ott as the starting outfielders. And I got to be honest, that's a pretty damn good outfield. After we were talking a little bit about ah, some of these second basemen and, you know, shortstops aren't as good. Zach Wheat, Willie Mays, and Mel Ott, you know, it's no Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, and Joe DiMaggio, but that's still a pretty damn good outfield. And it's three pretty distinct eras, although obviously all the early part of the 20th century is. for the most it part, is. you know, pre-1960. Uh, I guess the next place we would want to go idea. would be to the um, the backup center fielder, and I went with Duke Snyder. So did I. You know, the very famous sort of New York Willie Mickey and the Duke thing uh, in the 50s, and certainly comparing compared to Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle, Duke Snyder's not on that level, but he does still deserve to be Considered, he was one of the better players in baseball on one of the best teams in baseball for a while, and he was able to play for several years in the. You know, once the Dodgers moved to L.A., he was on the '59 team that won the championship, for example. But you know, was in the early '50s, especially '53, '54, '55, finished in the top four of MVP voting all each of those years. Obviously, center field always going to be the sort of a linchpin of most teams from a, a you know, a, a lineup everyday standpoint. Had some years of probably, what, 53 was his best year, or maybe 55, with a 42 home runs and 136 RBIs in 1955, including and, and a 309 right. batting average. Um, so to me, it was I feel easy like those the, four uh, were easy, easy and the next field. two might be a little more difficult. Where did you go next? Uh, we need at least two more outfielders. I'll give you both the ones I had, and you let me know if I'm off base you know, on either of these. Ne- I, I did not Monty necessarily Irvin have either one of those two, although Strawberry was my other flexed player. I like Monty Irvin. Flexed great player, player great okay. story. Another player who suffered because of the color line, uh, didn't make it to the major leagues until 1949 at the age of 30, and then played the next uh, seven years with the Giants – and was a part of both the 51 pennant winning team and the 54 world champion winning team. His best year was probably 51 where he had 121 RBIs and 24 home runs only made one all-star team in 1952, but 51, definitely his best year. So I really, uh, I, I couldn't go there with Irvin and, and we'll do, um, we'll do strawberry, I guess, in a couple of minutes. The two guys that I had were two guys from very different eras. I had Carlos Beltran. Beltran is a, probably a borderline Hall of Famer. I'd say he probably gets in. Now, he 
ended up winning his championship with the Astros in his last year. And then obviously there was the whole sign stealing scandal and that whole thing. Um, but had some really good years with the Mets from when he signed with them in 2005. He was probably the best player on those teams. The one that almost went to the World Series and then the two that blew the pennant in the last day of the season in 2007 and 2008. Sort of the leader of those teams, gold gloves in center field, all-stars, not a lot of black ink, not a lot of um, league leaderships, but I think a very, very good player for the Mets, probably had his best years with the Mets and somebody who is a borderline Hall of Famer. And then my second guy going way back was a guy by the name of Ross Youngs, who played with the Giants for his entire career. He had a 10-year career. Another one of these guys who's in the Hall of Fame probably doesn't deserve to be. Didn't get in until the 1972 Veterans Committee ballot, but a guy who was a solid player, won a couple of titles, with the Giants in 1922 and 1923. So now, did you um, have an outfielder as your other utility player, or did you have somewhere else that you went with that? Well, I did have an outfielder mm -hmm. as my other utility player, but it wasn't anybody you mentioned. I wanted to circle back to Beltran real quick. Any look, and yeah, his numbers, his time as a Met were impressive. And any sort of trepidation that his most famous moment as a Met was going down looking with his bat on his shoulder, the Cardinals. Who was your other guy? Because I feel like now we've got to sort of find two spots among these guys. I had High Pockets Kelly on there, and that's and in general. Obviously, he was a good <laughs> player, and I'm pulling up his numbers now, but I would be lying if I didn't say I was partial to his nickname. But he did have a good seven, eight years with them. Giants. He was actually a giant in 1915 and 16 and 17. He got he left for a while and then came back and then missed a year. I'm assuming due to military service for World War One. Um, you know, had some good years at the plate. Um, again during the dead ball era. But if you look at some of the numbers in the early 20s, over 100 RBIs four years in a row. 136 RBIs in 1924. 324 average. 328 in 1922. I guess the reason I, I was a little, and then in the late 20s was in the top, you know, four or five for MVP. And some of those MVPs, it gets a little dicey because when do you consider it the modern era MVP? I, you know, it kind of started in the early 20s. Yeah, and I think that was, was the same way for the National League in the, that time period, the early 20s. Could only win it once for a while. And, but like, and also when you see sometimes they go, a guy won an MVP in 1913, that was a, that wasn't like, a moderate that wasn't the modern award you know so it's a little bit different but um you know i thought he, he at least belongs in the discussion um had had some really good years was one of the better players on championship teams for the giants in the in the 20s so i had him in addition to uh to irvin and strawberry the one of the ones i had because we're, we're kind of divergent here in the outfield the one i would actually sort of make a strong case for more than anybody else is Daryl Strawberry because I think his, you know, he sort of gets him and Gooden, especially you kind of think of like, well, think about how much better they could have been. And then of course, Strawberry leaving in 91 to go to the Dodgers, but he still, he had an eight year career, basically or an eight year run, basically his whole twenties with the 
with the Mets, won the championship in 86. 88 was by far his best year as a Mets, and really the best year of his career. You know, he, he was never a high average hitter, only hit 269 that year, but also had 39 home runs, over 100 RBIs. Uh, I guess 90 was pretty good too, even though the Mets had started to go downhill. So, you know, I, I just thought being the best sort of everyday player on those teams, or at least in the conversation. I would um, agree. I and uh, I mean, a, a in the 80s, they thought he was the next you know, Ted Williams. That didn't pan out, but anybody who was that good, I think, belongs. And his inclusion on the team is fitting because he is one of the few guys who played for all four of the one-time New York teams, the Yankees, Giants, Dodgers, and Mets. In fact, those were the only four teams he played on in his career. So uh, we've got Mays, we've got Ott, we've got Snyder, we've got Wheat. Uh, why don't we go with Strawberry? And in reviewing uh, High Pockets Kelly, I, I think you've kind of won me over on him now. The thing about Kelly is he was a first baseman for a decent chunk of his career, but if we make him the flex position, then we've got no problem there because he can be either a first baseman or an outfielder. So we're really sort of between uh, Beltran, Ross Youngs, and Monty Irvin. I'm inclined to Beltran just based on longevity and his time with the team. Did you have a strong case for somebody else? No, I don't think I do. I think Beltran is, I, I guess my initial thought about Beltran is, well, he played for so many teams, but you're right. When you look at his best years as a Met and they were great years and the team was good. And, you know, he was the best position player on those teams. Do you want to do what we did last That's week and sort of end with the starting pitchers and do the bullpen first? I think that's the way to go. Um, you know, and again, like we mentioned last week with the Yankees, obviously relief pitching is something that in its modern understanding really doesn't begin much before the 70s, but there were relievers before that. It was obviously starters went much deeper into games, if not completing them, and most guys that were in the bullpen wanted to be starters, so relievers of anything relievers are going to skew more towards current guys why don't you um give me your mets first tell me everybody you had that was a met all right i have three mets wow so i had john franco i had franco but, uh i think Tug we McGraw, can agree that franco belongs Russell. on the team because he was a guy who pitched a lot okay. of years for the mets um he was not very good sometimes with the Mets, but he was their closer for a long time. He led the league in saves a few times with the Mets. He made a couple of all-star teams. I feel like you can't have an all-time New York bullpen without John Franco. So I, I think he probably belongs there, even though my recollection from growing up is that Mets fans basically wanted to slaughter him half the time. So I think I think I'm comfortable with including Franco. The other Met that I had was Armando Benitez, who was known as a closer who was really good and threw really hard on a day-in and day-out basis, but then was just infuriating when he tried to close a big game. So those were my two Mets, Benitez and Franco. Who was your other one? I had Hoyt Wilhelm as my other one. Um. You know, a guy who, very famous knuckleballer, if you've seen the movie 61 when he was on the Orioles, 
not that it's a totally accurate representation, but he's the one they brought in in the game where Maris could hit the home run without the quote unquote asterisk. Um, where they they brought him in even though the Orioles were losing to try and and uh, and get him out so that he wouldn't hit the home run. But before that, early in his career, he was on the uh, the New York Giants from fifty two to fifty six. So right before they moved, um, you know, and again at a time when relief pitching wasn't super prevalent he you know in 1952 for example he won 15 games as a relief pitcher he did not start a game any of those years with the giants appeared in 71 games went 15 and 3 with a 2.43 era the next year he was almost as good he appeared in 68 games with a 3.04 era year after that when they won the championship he won another 12 games appearing in 57 with a 2.10 era just really sort of out of another era, even the era he was in, it was not common to have a guy pitch in. You know, think about an era where starters finished every game they could. In 1952, finished fourth he pitched in the MVP voting the games and as won 15 a rookie games relief pitcher in 1952. So the other two that I had Paul. were Benitez, who I mentioned, then Clem Labine, who was the top relief pitcher on the... Boys of Summer uh, Dodgers teams of the 1950s. Um, couple of all-star games. Um, nothing overly impressive about Clem Labine, but I thought he would be a good representative of those Dodger teams. Um, why don't you sort of briefly talk about your case for both McDowell and McGraw? I'm sorry, Orozco and McGraw, not not Roger McDowell. Go ahead. Well, it was Orozco and McGraw. Mm -hmm. For the record, I had Labine as a starter, but I have an arrow drawn to reliever. I had him as my starter because I couldn't come up with anybody. You know, I was like, yeah, he was kind of a reliever too. So I'll list him as a starter, and then I have an arrow over to being able to do both. Um, Kind of like we did with High Pockets Kelly, where we said, well, if we leave him as the, the one of the last position players, we can count him as as multiple things. So with with um with Tug McGraw, so he was a Met 65, 66, 67, kind of as he was coming up, and then really from 69 to 74 before he went to the uh the Phillies and then won another championship with the Phillies. But, you know, had a lot of years here where again Almost never, you made a few starts, especially in the 60s, but like in 1969, for example, he appeared in 42 games, um, only started four of them, had saves not being a, a real metric back then, most of that's retroactive, but I look at a couple of these years, 69, he finished 26 games, only got 12 saves, because again, the metric wasn't something that was counted really back then. 26 games finished, 2.24 ERA, 71. He had um, 32 games finished with a, excuse me, 34 games finished with a 1.7 ERA. 72, he was an all-star, exact same ERA, 1.7. That year, he finished 47 games. 73, the numbers up significantly, but that was also the year that they kind of rode him towards the end to winning that pennant. Um, 46 games finished. So I think just being a guy who finished so many games and had such a good ERA, the save numbers obviously aren't comparable to what you would see today, but 
hard to argue he wasn't one of the best relief pitchers in baseball at that time, and certainly the Mets' top reliever in what was one of, if not the most, you know, prolific era of Mets baseball. And as for Orozco, I mean, again, Orozco played for so many different teams, but he started his career with the Mets. Really, his first full year was 82, pitched a little in 82. He appeared in 54 games, actually started two games. That was the end of that for the rest of his career. Yeah, never started again. Yeah, it was an all-star in 83 and 84. Finished In 83, he finished third in Cy Young voting and 17th in MVP voting as a relief pitcher. Um, you know, the save numbers were... Pull up the exact save numbers. Baseball reference is giving me an annoying Sherwin-Williams ad every time I pull a new page up, so it's unuser-friendly. But, you know, save numbers only in the in the teens for most years, except for 84 when it was 31. But again, you look at games finished, and most of those years it was in the 40s and 50s. And from 82 to 86, he had a, a, a run there, really 82 to, yeah, 86, because 87 was his last year with the Mets, where his ERA was never rose above 2.7, basically, including 83 when it was 1.47, 86 the championship year when it was 2.33, and he finished 40 games, so a quarter of their games. Um, so again, he, you think of Jesse Roscoe and you think of, oh, a guy who was around forever and pitched for a million teams, but really started out and when he was in the era that most baseball players have their whole career was when he was as a Met. And if you have Labine as one of your uh, starters, I think that McGraw, um, I think that Labine would fit well in the bullpen, and then we'll add Tug McGraw as well. All right, so our bullpen, John Franco, Clem Labine, Hoyt Wilhelm, and Tug McGraw. Let's let's go through the starting pitchers, and just like we did in the previous episode, why don't you sort of tick through um, your eight and... I will tell you uh, yay or nay, because I, obviously there are going to be a few that were very much um, no-brainers. Absolutely. Right. I'm sorry. So I'll start at Chris, the top. Chrissy Matheson, yes, certainly. Um, so when we get down to that, I'll, I'll mention One of, if not Chrissy the Matheson, best right-handed pitcher Tom in C. history, um, it's either him or Walter Johnson, um, an all-time legend, no question about Chrissy Matheson. Absolutely. The best pitcher in Mets history, the best player in Mets history, Tom Seaver was leader seven. of the 69 championship team beloved in New York recently passed away, unfortunately. But when you think of sort of, and I think prior to Jeter and Rivera, Tom Seaver had the highest percentage of votes for an all, for a hall of famer getting in on the writer's ballot. So an all time legend, Tom Seaver. Absolutely. Yes. He was my third one as well. Another all-time legend, a um, pitcher for the Giants in the 20s and 30s, pitched his whole career with the Giants from 28 to 43, um, led the league in wins several times, led the league in ERA several times, uh, two MVPs as a pitcher in the 1930s, and by that point it was the modern incarnation of the MVP award. Carl Hubble is somebody who had one of the great moments in all-star game history where he struck out um, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Al Simmons, and Joe Cronin, five all-time greats, five Hall of Famers. He struck them all out in a row. 
um, probably the best pitcher other than Matthewson in New York Giants history. So Carl Hubble, uh, yes, definitely have him on the list. Absolutely. Um, he and Zach Wheat are the 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 only other Brooklyn Dodgers teams that were any good prior to the boys of summer era. Uh, and that was in, um, 1916 and 1920 when they made the uh the world series and lost both years a guy who got um sort of a late start in his career he played pitched a couple games in 1915 and then again in 1918 for the pirates and later the yankees but really didn't catch on with the dodgers until 1922 uh when he was over 30 years old so you're talking about a guy who started his career after the age of 30, but still managed to make the Hall of Fame as a pitcher with the Dodgers. And I just have uh, a quote here. Um, he was once described as being, quote, as wild as a vodka-soaked Bolsheviki in front of a red flag. So I frankly don't even know exactly what that means, but that was how he was described. I really don't. I don't know whether that means he was like wild as an angry or like a wild thrower. I really have no idea. How do you know? You know exactly what that means. Well, I mean, think about it. they're saying like a drunken Russian, you know. So he was wild, like I, probably I true. Think they meant because was his nickname Dazzy. All right, but he is he is on my so list. Probably uh, was like Dazzy a bit Vance, of a, uh, one of the lowest. Spirit, um, I think he has will. one of the uh, lowest winning percentages of any pitcher in the Hall of Fame. He's only one ninety seven and one forty. But um, yes. Dazzy Vance is on my list, so that's four. Um, I had Gooden on my team as well. He was a phenom when he came up. Uh, 85 was his best year where we went 24-4 and with a 1.53 ERA and won the Cy Young Award. Um, Gooden was at least a um, an adequate pitcher for the Mets up through 1993. Um, when he um, left the team, left the team after the '94 season, did some good things. He was a solid pitcher. Won 19 games in 1990, so his career was not the total flameout that you might think of it. Won 194 games, which we were just talking about. Dazzy Vance getting in the Hall of Fame with 190. Um, Doc Gooden is in some ways a borderline Hall of Famer if you just look at what he did and don't think about what he didn't do. So absolutely, Doc Gooden is on my list. So that's five. All right. And then I mentioned I have Labine eight. So my last two guys, I have one guy who is still active. Uh, I believe that's the only one anywhere on this list. I have Jacob deGrom on the list. And then my seventh uh, one, and again, Labine was my eighth. Jacob deGrom and then Joe McGinnity, McGinty or McGinnity. So I, I had McGinnity, but uh, um, the early led the league in wins. McGinnity, who played for the Giants um, for sort of the, in the first starters. decade of the 20th century, from 1902 <laughs> until 1928, um, and actually he came into the league um, with the Brooklyn team and um, led the league in wins in both 1899 and 1900. So. Really, if if we said 1900 forward, he was a guy who led the leagues in wins, winning percentage, and uh, innings pitched in 1900. Also seemed to have led the league in hit batsmen in 1900 with 40. But nonetheless, a guy who in New York led the league in wins four times, um, led the league in ERA in uh, 1904 <laughs> with a 1.61 
ERA. So um, 44 complete games in 1903. He was sort of the um, second part of the one-two punch with Matthewson in uh, the 1900s, in the first decade of the 1900s. So absolutely a Hall of Famer, uh, Joe McGinnity, a certainly um, a deserving Hall of Famer and Based, I'm sure, on some of the stats I just listed, his nickname was Iron Man because he was a guy who pitched a lot of complete games, pitched a lot of innings, and was somebody you could count on on your team. So I'm with you on Joe McGinnity. That's six. Um, I had not included DeGrom, but I think that um, maybe to provide just a little bit of modern flavor and also the fact that he has he won two Cy Young Awards in a row mm-hmm. – and is the one pitcher from that great Mets cadre of Harvey, Syndergaard, even Zach Wheeler. He's the one guy who's emerged and has really been somebody who's lived up to the hype. So uh, I will give you DeGrom as well. Uh, so that brings us to seven. You had listed Clem Labine, but we already took care of him down below. I was between two guys for the last position, um, both guys from at least somewhat in the old days, the mm-hmm. first one that I listed was a Giants pitcher, another Hall of Famer who kind of took over as the uh, second piece with Matthewson right after Joe McGinnity left. And that was uh, Rube Marquard, who pitched first for the Giants and later for the Dodgers um, in the Hall of Fame. Again, another guy who got into the Hall of Fame from the Veterans Committee in the early 1970s, who maybe doesn't deserve to be. But a Hall of Famer nonetheless, a uh, couple of seasons leading the league in wins. He one of the gotta be one of the few guys who has led the league in both wins and losses, not in the same year, but he won twenty-six games in nineteen twelve to lead the National League. And then in nineteen eighteen with Brooklyn, he lost eighteen games to lead the league in losses. So um he was my first choice. He mm. signed his first contract uh, with the Giants for a salary of $11,000, and he then became known as the $11,000 Beauty. And then when he struggled in his first couple years in the, with the team, they later referred to him as the $11,000 Lemon. So um, that's Marquard. Yeah. And then the other one I had, who I think I'm going to go with, yet again sort of showing my affinity for these Boys of Summer Dodgers. Um, the other one that I had was Don Newcomb. Now, two things about Newcomb that are worth noting, one of which um, is something that you can blame him for, one of which is something that you cannot. Newcomb may have suffered a bit from the color line. Now, he came into the league in 1949 at the age of 23. So unlike Jackie Robinson or Monty Irvin or some of these other players, it's hard to argue that he missed too many young seasons because of the color line. Now, he also missed 52 and 53 for military service. So if you kind of factor in, he missed maybe a year or two because of segregation. And then he missed maybe a year or two because of military service. Or he didn't maybe miss a year or two because of military service. He missed two years because of military service. But a guy who... um Led the league 1956 at the age of 30. This was a guy who had a 27 and 7 win loss record, led the league uh, in wins, led the league in winning percentage, 
won the Cy Young Award, which I believe that may have been the very first Cy Young Award in 1956. And that was during a time period when there was only one Cy Young Award for both leagues. And in addition to winning the Cy Young Award, he, and I just looked it up, that's correct. The very first Cy Young Award winner in 1956 when it was for both leagues and only one winner for both leagues. And then also was named MVP that year. Somebody who some people say could be a borderline hall of famer. Now he was terrible in the postseason, and in the postseason in those days, that meant pitching in the world series against the Yankees. Um, Owen four on his career. He in 1949 in game one of the world series, he matched up against the Yankees and Tommy Henrik hit a, Walk off home run against him to win the game one nothing for the Yankees, and he never really had another good game in the World Series again. And in 1956, he was absolutely horrible. He started Game Seven for the Dodgers and was out of the game in like the first or second inning. But a really good player when he was on the field, and the reasons why he was not on the field were in large part uh, not his own fault and not his own doing. Another interesting thing about Newcomb was that he was such a good hitter that he, the team would sometimes use him as a pinch hitter on his off days. And in fact, he hit seven home runs in uh, 1955 for the Dodgers and had an average of 350, uh, an average of 359 in over a hundred plate appearances. So I would like to select, uh, with your permission, I would like to make Don Newcomb the last pitcher on our team. All right, so let me go through our roster really quick here, uh, and I will list um, the starters Absolutely. at each position so, first and uh, then the backup. A strong case Catcher, there. we have Roy Campanella and Gary Carter. First base, Bill Terry, Keith Hernandez, and then Gil Hodges at the flex position. Second base, Jackie Robinson and Frankie Frisch. Third base, David Wright and Freddie Lindstrom. Shortstop, Pee Wee Reese and Travis Jackson. Outfield, we have the starting outfield of Willie Mays, Mel Ott, and Zach Wheat, and then the backup outfield is Duke Snyder, Carlos Beltran, Daryl Strawberry, and then a flex of a utility man of High Pockets Kelly who can play either the outfield or first base. And then the pitching staff, Christy Mathewson, Carl Hubble, Tom Seaver, Joe McGinnity, Dazzy Vance, Dwight, Doc Gooden, Jacob deGrom, and Don Newcomb. Mm -hmm. And our bullpen is John Franco, Clem Labine, Hoyt Wilhelm and Tug, you gotta believe McGraw. We have spent, um, quite a bit of time on this episode as we are known to do. But, um, overall, um, I think it's going to be a good series, a good simulated series between the Yankees and the New York National League team. I was just going to say, I would think the simulations, I mean, when you think about the outfield strength of the Yankees, obviously the, the National League team has a, an edge in starting pitching. I have to think the Yankees get the edge just because of the power from all the outfield positions and from first and from catcher and from third, frankly, with A-Rod. You really don't have a position where the NL team is definitely better. And then even in the bullpen, Marion Rivera, Goose Gossage, and Sparky Lyle um, and Johnny Murphy 
probably get the edge over uh, John Franco, Clem Levine, Hoyt Wilhelm, and Tug McGraw. But it'll be an interesting simulation. We'll be I'll be using out out of the park baseball uh, twenty one, which is a simulation game that I love. So a lot of fun. Um, next week we will do our World Series episode. Uh, we're going to pick a couple of World Series in history. Uh, for whichever teams happen to be in the World Series and sort of go through their World Series history a little bit. And then after that, uh, we'll move away from baseball for a little bit and uh, and discuss some different sports because we want to make sure that we're giving attention um, to all of the sports and not just focusing on baseball. But it being October, we thought that this was an appropriate um, appropriate use of of a couple of episodes to really dive into baseball history and specifically New York baseball history. So um Andrew, did you have anything else to add? No, I think we'll obviously, once you do the simulation, we'll, we'll do a brief overview of that at the beginning of an episode just to uh, talk about who won and anything interesting that happens. But um, no, other than that, I think it's uh, it's been good. And, you know, the first couple episodes we've done sort of lists and Mount Rushmore's, but uh, we have a couple episodes. Dan mentioned the World Series episode, and then we'll get into some other sports where we'll get maybe a little more into just sort of discussing certain topics and interesting i'm dan newman and i'm andrew newman goodbye old sports this podcast is part of the sports history network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport you can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com